you do me a favor and please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Philip Davidoff. Now, I, re I read a little bit about your history, and specifically it was an article about your father also being an icon writer under the USSR. How did that happen? And then how, you know, like, how did that get passed down to you also? I guess as any artist in Samash Academy or the institution, you try to search for different kinds of art. And he was just experimenting with painting like Van Gogh, like Matisse, and try to paint an icon. So that was just some very occasional experiment, as he told me. And he wasn't succeeded, so he didn't like what came out. And he tried again and tried again, and he was never happy with the result until he understood that there was something behind the results. So there should be something else. What rules your hand? What helps you to produce the image, the object you desire? So that brought him to the church. And then he passed this on to you? Well, on his generation of artists who occasionally found iconography as a way of, I don't know, being ministers of God, they were very few. And for them, it was very interesting to see what makes art become an icon. How a piece of art, how a picture can be recognized as an icon. What makes it an icon? So they studied the rules, they studied the inner mechanisms which function that way. And his approach was very attractive for me and he taught me that, and I learned from him that every image has to have an engine, have to have certain inner principles which visually work on you, not just make an impression, but interact with you in a certain way. So, yes. No, but you just said, like, there are rules about making icons. Is that true? Are there well, absolute... Are there like written rules that say this make this constitutes something that's an icon versus this? It's a very classical question because anyone who would have heard ever a word icon would say, do you paint or do you write icons according to canons? And yes and no, because there are several issues connected to this, to this term, to this problem, because first, yes, there are several written rules or canons and one of them, I like this one probably the best, is that the Godfather cannot be represented visually as nobody have ever seen him. So that would be a disrespect. We can't see angels, but we paint angels, but that's kind of indication of some heavenly forces. If you talk about Godfather, that probably is a real way of subordination, yeah, of, of showing respect towards the sacred. And there are several other, I don't know, rules, which are like iconographers should be using most decent materials as they are dealing with the sacred. And other certain things which we can call technical. Why the problem of canon comes to be so serious? Because in the beginning of 20th century, in the middle of 20th century, there were several theologians who studied, who investigated the tradition of iconography, and they built their own decent, serious, and seriously rooted definitions of what an icon should be and what should it be not. But these are private opinions, which are very important, very seriously influencing the result of your work, but they have never been recognized by canons by anyone, anywhere. So we have a great respect towards Florensky, Trubetskoy, Uspensky. They were great masters of their time, verbal, visual, some of them, but mostly we consider them as those who are teachers of the church. Yes, they have some certain teaching what iconography should be. But many people confuse this with canons. Yeah, I mean, because like a lot of people believe that a lot of people that sort of aren't in the icon slash religious worlds believe that like icons are somehow like consecrated or blessed or something like this that sort of elevates them in some way in the religious uh, sort of construct. But there's not necessarily that. I mean, it's uh, the object itself does not have to be 
bless or consecrate, or does it? I'm not sure now that I've said it out loud. <laughs> well, you're touching very serious topics because it also depends on what paradigm are we talking about? Because if we speak about the Eastern world, the history of Eastern iconography starts much earlier than Christianity. It starts from the respect of Roman citizens towards the portrait of the emperor. And officially, if you're in some remote province, your legal acts could be accomplished in front of a portrait of an emperor, and that was legalizing the legal acts. So it had a sacred power in real official way. So the icons and the approach to images inherited this serious and sacred approach to emperor's portraits a lot. So if we are speaking about should they be consecrated or not, that's a concrete question, which may be, I don't know, about 17th century, where we have the first official written rite of consecration of an icon. But technically, icon is supposed to be sacred, so it's supposed to become consecrated once the title is put on it. All right. So the written title being put onto the piece is the thing that sort of... Uh elevates it to that consecrated quality, let's call it. It's what testifies the icon as a document, as an image which may be used by the church. All right. I have two very technical questions. I've seen many icons that are have gold, and I've seen many icons that have silver. Do those two materials have a different intention and purpose? If we speak about the medieval time, the gold and many other materials would have their own inner characteristics used as symbolic ones. As gold was supposed to be a specific metal or material which would never lose any of its qualities. So it's something unchangeable. And therefore they were using this material as most appropriate to the divinity, to the sacredness of objects you bring to the church. Another thing is that introducing gold into an image, you change the pattern. So it's no more just paint and board. You make the metal interact with the viewer, and this interaction can be very different because the very type of an image in iconography is mostly an abstracted type. So iconographers of the past didn't kill themselves reproducing every little single, I don't know, curl on the hair of the mother of God. So they were giving us an idea of a human being transformed or transfigured by the heavenly kingdom. So the golden background on an icon supposedly is a specific surface which divides our world from the world behind, from the world behind the icon, which may be really what is a representation of the heavenly space. So if we talk about realistic picture, the artist creates a space behind the surface of a picture. And we imagine these figure living in that space. It's a room, it's, I don't know, landscape, something behind this surface. If you speak about iconography, we don't have any space behind. The background is flat. So it's pushing forward whatever is painted on this surface. That means we have this image of some saint and some flat background giving it a possibility to appear in front of it. So the very background is kind of border between our world and the world where this figure comes from. All right, but just as a, that purely technical thing, like, is there a reason why some icons use silver for that background versus gold? Another thing I just wanted to add to that was that if you speak about how we can describe what the background is, is 
um, environment these figures are supposed to exist in, but where they are is the kingdom of God. So it's the God's glory which is shining in our earthly measures. It can be shining through gold, but it can also shine through silver. It can also shine through colors. So it's also another way of demonstrating that the glory of God cannot be represented with earthly mediums. And that's a great answer. Like the, it, it doesn't have to be like, no, it must be gold or silver's inappropriate. Like it was just a question because I've seen many icons where gold is used primarily as that background material. And I've seen some others that where silver is used. It seems like it was a regional or a time period or or something that's basically some different people in different locations or different beliefs sort of chose some different ideas and they said no we don't need gold we can use silver or vice versa well gold was supposed to be the more expensive one but if you wouldn't have gold you could always substitute it with something and i guess it's just our time obsession to make everything according to a model because if in some provincial church or parish you can't afford having gilded backgrounds, why bother? You do, you paint, you make your image the way you're able to, and nobody will be trying to, I don't know, laugh at you as you don't correspond to the highest standards of iconography. Okay. You brought up the idea that, like, at a certain point, they they were trying to like mimic, uh, uh, you know, reality, but they were never trying to do that. They were trying to just sort of do a representation of. One thing I know about icons, or at least what I'm, I, I think I know, is is that oftentimes contemporary iconographers are duplicating previous icons. So they're not uh, like coming up with new uh, looks or designs or impressions or anything. They're utilizing color palettes that are traditional designs and oftentimes literally copying an original icon from centuries ago with contemporary devices and contemporary paints. Is that the way you think about it? Or is do you uh, like create contemporary icons utilizing your knowledge and skills? I guess this thing also comes from the fact how recently the icons, the medieval icons were rediscovered. So we can speak about the end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century. And at that moment, when the restorers started cleaning them, they discovered the colors so bright and they were amazed to see how much it looked like real piece of art. But from the other hand, since the way of rendering the reality was so different from what art critics of the time used to have at their time, at the 19th century, they considered that it was not drawn or painted, it was all copied, because they didn't see how an abstracted shape could have a correlation could have some connection with the realistic shape. So that's the time when these restorers were teaching people, were speaking to different people and saying, look guys, you can never produce anything like that because this sacred object was just a result of work of generations and generations, and you just need to continue this work of these generations. You cannot produce anything of your own. and. What you said, I have also heard many iconographers saying that the best things have been produced many centuries ago. You can just reflect what's been produced. You can just try to bring best what you can do in producing something, but never ever try to dare to do anything of your own. But that, I guess that happens because of lack of knowledge. Because if you start looking at many icons, if you start learning the history of church art, you discover there are thousands and thousands of very different approaches of artists who were perfectly rooted in their tradition. So we speak about early Christian art, they are rooted in Roman ancient tradition. We speak about medieval time, they're rooted in what they could be rooted at the moment. So with barbarians invading the Roman Empire, they only had little opportunities for learning art. So they produced what they could produce. 
So where do you fall on that? Are you of the belief of uh, needing to duplicate previous works or do you make your own sort of new interpretations of these ideas? Or I shouldn't say the ideas of these stories. Well, I think there should be both because if you'd like to produce something, people would consider a table. This object should look like a table. Somehow, it may have three legs, two, even one, but that should kind of be recognizable as a table. So we need from the tradition to give us the soil, to give us the visual material of how this particular problem or question or subject was embodied before you. Like if you have a commission of the plant to create an icon of John the Baptist, for example, that icon should be a recognizable image of John the Baptist, however you make it. So it can be blue color or green, but it should be recognizable. So taking the objects and subjects from the tradition, we always have to consider our actual audience, people who will be attending the churches and who will be looking at these icons. And if you guess that to produce the best image of John the Baptist, you should draw every little curl, again, repeating myself, sorry, that guarantees the sacredness and the faithfulness to the tradition, I'm not sure. So the main thing is that icon may interact with the person who is coming to you. And that will only happen if you thoughtfully analyze what you receive from the tradition and you put it into your image the way you consider is the best. So it's not a question of like creating something new. My dad used to teach me, we are solving concrete questions or problems, yes? You have your own proportions of the board. You have your own circumstances. And you adjust what you have as a model to your circumstances. In some cases, your image can be brighter. In some cases, your image can be longer or more flat or a little more realistic, but yet, so it's a way to produce an object which would correspond to certain expectations. There, there's an ongoing debate about like icons with the whole writing versus painting icons. I'm fascinated by this because on the one hand, I, I understand how both of them can be right. And to a certain extent, both of them are wrong. So I'm wondering what your sort of perspective or opinion on that uh, issue is. I must admit you have a very extended knowledge about iconography, so that's something I just have to recognize. If you want to get technical, it's hagiography. I even know that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for putting this out. And I guess the question is also has its roots in the beginning of 20th century, when lots of emigrants were coming abroad from Russia, escaping from Soviets, and they were trying to adjust what they had to local cultures. And since in normal Russian language, if you are a professional artist, you are writing your painting. So the term we use for professional artists producing their pictures is to write a portrait, to write a picture. Wait, that's it. Okay, that, that's literally just the translation of the yes. Russian word for like to paint. Is to yes. write. No, 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 because to paint is a separate word. Okay, because like I'm a photographer and that it going back to Latin is is uh, to paint or draw with light. Gross. So uh -huh. the, the graphy is, is the, the to paint or to draw. And so like so this this whole sort of battle back and forth about whether it's a painting or a writing is literally just a translation issue. Yes, exactly. Especially because Russians wanted to bring forward the fact that icons were mostly copied or taken from these prories or these linear drawings. So you're not just applying paint on the surface. You first produce some certain drawing, which later is fulfilled, is accomplished, is completed with the painting process. So for these people, it was very important to put forward the fact or the procedure of creation of an icon, which 
And their understanding was way different from what the academic painting was at the time, or some, I don't know, general artist's work was at the time. You sort of just blew my mind a little bit on that because I've been under the impression that it was an internal sort of uh, perspective of history where like in the old days, it was for lack of a better way of explaining it, like you were writing visually the story of the Bible to be placed in a church for the illiterate to quote, quote unquote read, but they were looking at pictures, the story of the Bible. But because they couldn't read, that was the way they would understand the stories. But you're telling me that that whole idea is not true. Well, that whole idea can be true if you speak about the Western iconographers and the Western world. Because since what I said about Eastern guys who were killing each other for 200 years for the possibility or not impossibility for their right or wrong way of I don't know, venerating icons, people in the West had no problems like that. They were always treating images like illustrations or little more than illustrations, sometimes as a substitution for relics, but never worried about how sacred are the materials of which icons are made, how much presence of God or saints themselves can be calculated if we talk about certain particular image. Okay, you're totally blowing everything that I, I thought I knew about icons. So you're saying that the materials are not as important also, or traditionally, I should say, traditionally, the materials were not as important. Well, they were important as any material for any work, for any job. I don't know, if you're a good smith, you're choosing the best iron for your work. Okay, all right. When it comes to the materiality, like a, a tradition says egg tempera on wooden panel is sort of your very, I, no pun intended, iconic icon look and materials. Are there certain woods that are used, like like that some that are sort of more appropriate, or is it just a materiality as far as use this wood because it's a dense, strong wood and will last for generations? So like, is there an actual like, like, I guess it's tradition of the, uh, with a reason for a particular wood, or is it simply because it's just a strong wood? Usually it should be soft wood because, <laughs> exactly, yes, because with the temperature and humidity changing, the wood behaving softly is better if on top of this wood we have a layer of gesso. So the gesso will crack faster if it's some strong wood. And the soft wood doesn't change so much with the change of humidity. And talking about the egg tempera, which I dearly love, it's not the only tradition because there used to be in caustic for first 600 years. And even in later manuscripts, we encounter specific recipes where the iconographer suggests to mix the casing glue with the wax. So there were lots of different techniques artists used. The main thing, I guess, for them was the durability and the stability of what they rely on. So you should produce image which would last for as long as it's possible. Do you grind your own pigment and everything or do you buy it? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, uh, it depends because lots of pigments simply buy at the store, but there are several pigments like lapis lazuli, which we buy as a spare part of jewelry makers. And we have a special person working in a geology department. She has a special machine which grinds them for us. So it depends. Well, I mean, it's just the, you know, like when general people think of somebody who does icons, again, sort of going back to this I, romantic idea of we think of that you care about every process that you're doing and that you hand make everything, you grind everything, you, you make everything from scratch and all this kind of stuff. That's not really true anymore, is it? I think while you were just mentioning this thing, I just guess we should refocus it because what all these things are about is that you control 100% of the surface or 100% of your image from point of view of materiality, how it looks like, how it behaves like in time. 
So you're not only responsible for how you combine the pigments or the paints you have taken out of a tube, you're responsible for how they all work together with their binder, with their bearing surface, with everything. So that's important because especially when we deal with iconography, it's a very interesting aspect. I'm not sure that artists have to really follow this thing, but in iconography, when you're producing an image for long-term concentration, focusing or dialogue, it should look like something made of something. What I mean is you can't simply take an absolutely flat surface and apply absolutely flat particles of a pigment. It should be a recognizable work of a human hand and the person looking at the image should feel the way the image was created. So that creates a possibility for a trustable dialogue between the image and the human. Because in our time, we have so many hundreds of printed icons where you have very good quality of reproduction. And yet, producing some real thing, you mentally are competing or you're comparing your result with some printed result. And you probably are supposed to make a certain effort for not to be confused with a printed result. So therefore, we sometimes have to exaggerate the materiality of certain aspects of the image, just not to be confused with the print. Well, and for the listeners, the, what he's talking about is when you work with egg tempera in particular, you actually build up layers and each layer has a, a little bit of a thickness. I mean, it's not it's not super dense. We're not talking crazy abstract and kind of stuff, but there is a, a physicality so that when the icon is done, to a certain extent, you could run your hand over it and you can feel the different colors almost because they have a different depth and texture to them. So there is that, that, that a lot of people who haven't had the opportunity to look at closely or touch an icon that they would not recognize because they're so accustomed to seeing photographs of them or postcards of them or any of these other kinds of ways of expressing them that most people don't get to see the true sort of texture of it. I want to move over a little bit. So you and your wife run your studio, is that correct? Yes. So is this like, a, what is it, you know, you both work on any given icons together? Are you both artists? Uh, is it like, or does like one of you do the books and one of you does the marketing or is like separation of power or is it very much uh, an integrated studio process? No, it's just a complex question. And I'm trying to answer. Well, wait, while you're going to start to explain it also. Uh-huh. What what about the physicality? Now, uh, keep in mind, I've never been to St. Petersburg. My parents have been there. But the, what's the nature? Like, so do you have a physical studio or like do you just paint in your home? Like what's the also the physicality of it? I probably should start with saying that in Soviet time, artists were supposed to be producing the ideological instruments like portraits of Lenin, Stalin etc. And we had a certain institution which was providing orders to the artists. They were supposed to work somewhere. And since that time, artists in Russia or in listen big cities have some possibility to have a little or a little bigger rooms for a low rent as their studios. So it's official union of artists of Russia, which previously was used to distribute the commissions for portraits, but now it just exists as a union of artists. And we have an official little room in the old city, not far from our home. So that's where we work. Apart from that, we do belong to the Society of Iconographers who are more than 200 in St. Petersburg. And we are supposed to be part of this guild as we are. But the other question is that getting the orders and commissions is a specific thing, since in our country, there are many churches which are rebuilt 
or build from scratch. And there is such a high request for iconography, or at least it used to be some years ago, because there were huge buildings and Russians love making things huge, rich, expensive, and right away. And the problem is that those who can produce their work quickly for the lowest price are those who get the market. So those who are really the kings of the market. Since we were educated as art critics, we think that probably is not the very way it was done in the past. So we find out for ourselves that being totally dependent on the clients is not a very good thing. So from the other hand, we discovered that there is a certain number of people in the world who'd like to learn what iconography is, and we teach iconography. Before the pandemics, we used to travel to Australia, United States, Italy, Canada, and other countries, but now we just had to shift online. So sorry for such an extended answer. And the idea is that the time we dedicate to teaching, we teach. But after that time, we have certain periods when we can work freely and either we accomplish our orders, each of us would have private orders, or we do something together, but usually we don't work on one icon. We just separate parts of the work. So the both of you technically are iconographers and you will basically sort of work under one studio, let's call it. Yes, yes. Okay, wait, I have a silly question. My understanding of icons is, is that oftentimes the painter slash writer of the icon, because I still don't know what the right way to say it is, it is not generally supposed to, quote unquote, like sign the work. It's. I think it's a right question because it depends on very much on the attitude. In our time, when on every, I don't know, industrially produced object, you have to have it logo, which would testify Sony or something else. In iconography, it can happen if you do it on the backside. Because why someone should look at your signature in the moment of prayer? So that probably is the main thing. And from the history, we know there were certain iconographers who worked in certain churches, and it wasn't secret. But the problem is if you make your signature become part of the image for prayer. So I guess there's no specific reason for it. So you disrupt. Why should your name disrupt others? I totally understand that. I, I'm not a big fan of any sort of art form where the signature is part of the image itself, you know, whether it's a sculpture or a painting or whatever. Like I don't like it when the signature detracts from the appreciation of the imagery. I totally get that. So, but what you're saying is, is it's perfectly legitimate to quote unquote sort of sign it or put a stamp or say it's from your studio or whatever on the back of it, as long as it doesn't interfere with the, the engagement with the, the holy image. Yes, totally correct. Fair enough. I like that. Okay. Going back. So you said that you, you had figured out a way to sort of diversify your income because basically getting these commissions is basically just like any other corporate commission, which is like the lowest bid wins. And so that's not necessarily what you wanted to be doing. So now you seem to have branched out. I've seen that you do, you do textiles, you do encaustics, you do embossed, I would call it icons, as well as traditional sort of, uh, you know, egg tempera on panel. So how did that come about this, this sort of way to sort of diversify all these different things? Because I'm sure it's not easy to make a living doing such a specialized thing in the world. Well, that is why we always have this teaching thing. So when we see that the amount of money we have for the next few months is getting lower, we start thinking like, okay, it's time to launch another course and we work hard and we produce something which we think is worthy. And we try to produce something which should be a good thing. But from point of view of diversity of techniques, it also is a way of answering the questions or answering the requirements. Because in certain moment, you have a priest or somebody else approaching you and saying, please, can you make a design for my church banner? 
And you start thinking, okay, you're making a design, and then this person goes to some copy center and prints it out. And printing out sometimes is not bad, but since we're so badly worrying about materiality, we think, okay, we rather produce this thing by ourselves. And then you come and say, well, guys, you know what? I'm producing this thing for you by Olga's own hands. And that's how it comes through. And in during last year, I'm working in a church where priests, how he like, captured my attention. He approached me and said, Philip, can you paint an iconostasis without gold for my church? I don't want any gold. Well, the problem is that in medieval times, the gold was a very important and a serious value. In our time, you buy a book of gold leaf for 25 leaves for a price of a dinner for three people. So is it a real value you would wish to bring to God as a sacrifice? Not sure. In our time, I guess, the energy and time of your life is the sacrifice probably would be mostly valuable. And therefore, there are lots and lots of ways of producing things which would be more special, more expressive and visually rich than simple golden background, which many iconographers are just used to, to use everywhere. So that's how we see this situation. And so when this priest approached me, I said, okay, let's try. And I started building up some structure. And at that moment, I discovered I need to have some icons on glass because this church had lots of light. It already had some drawings on the windows, matted windows drawings. So I had to learn how to paint on glass. I've been on stained glass, masterclass, and so forth. It's life which brings you to learn certain things. Indeed. I mean, first of all, a lot of people don't even understand the fact that churches have banners like that's just a thing that a lot of people don't even understand but like my father at his church he had a banner and he also he did his own um vestments he designed and stitched his own vestments he did his own banners and he he needle pointed them and they were massive and they took years to accomplish and then he even went a step farther and like every single kneeler in the church had its own figure person from sto from the from the Bible or or tangentially to the Bible, with their own individual story, hand designed and needle pointed. There were like three hundred of them, and it took him I think fifteen years to do it. So like I mean I'm all in on the the idea of making the experience you know very unique and intimate like i remember going to the church and i was i was always like oh wait i want this particular kneeler like i would look for a particular you know saint or apostle or whatever and i was like i want that kneeler and so i would sit wherever that kneeler was it was i didn't care where i was in the church but i wanted that kneeler trying to create that connection to these experiences of going into the church i personally thoroughly enjoyed and have great sort of fond memories of and i feel like a lot of this sort of stuff that you're doing is sort of continuing on with this tradition i thank you i hope i hope it does i don't know Speaking of tradition, though, in my impression, now I might be totally wrong on this, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Most iconographers seem to be men and not so many women. Is that normal where you are? Because, like, of course, I'm going from my Western perspective. No, I wouldn't be so sure because we have lots of people we know who are iconographers, men and women. No, no. Okay. Fair. Now, I know a lot of artists that like use iconic mm, visual representations, let's say, but they're not making icons. How do you feel about that? Like, to, is that some sort of almost like blasphemous to you? Like when a visual artist or any sort of an artist, I guess, for that matter, sort of uses religious iconography, but not for religious purposes? Uh, I guess it's helplessness. 
What you're talking about, first thing came to my mind was what was produced by some fashion studio several years ago when they borrowed some Byzantine mosaics. And for them, it was just a pattern taken from somewhere. But the way the mosaics are supposed to behave and are supposed to visually function was way or is way different from how they used it. So it's a wrong way of using from visual point of view, first of all. It's a visual ignorance in most of the cases. So it's a very really understanding of how this visual art works. And another thing that always captures my attention, when you finish your artwork, any artwork, at the very end, when it's done, it seems to be so natural to have all the pieces of it to be mounted in that particular way. But when you struggle to produce it, there is lots and lots of chances you just put away, you just neglect. So it's a long research process, which brings you to, in the end to simplicity. And there is a great number of people who think icons and all the other medieval art is very simple. But this understanding is probably confused with uncomplicated, like any real poetry, which at the end can have a huge meaning, can be very extensive with very few words. So in this case, it probably is just a temptation of using some icon-looking thing for your purposes. So you don't really have a problem with it other than the fact that people are sort of doing cultural appropriation, more or less? Well, if people try to nail, to, to, to hammer nails with a cell phone, you say, okay, these guys probably don't know what they're doing. Fair enough. But okay, within that context, though, it was, I apologize for asking this, but like, are you religious yourself? Uh, yes. Okay. Is it necessary for somebody who creates an icon to be religious? Well, I guess if you'd like to work as a dentist, you should believe that you're helping people avoid sickness or like get health better. So if you're trying to produce an instrument of connection between human and God, you're supposed to think that your instrument works for something, not just to bring you some income, but to really function. So that's fair. And that should be another point. I'm not sure it has to be put right here, but I guess it might be the point about copying or producing new things, because it's a very important understanding of work process when you start thinking of it. If your task is to reproduce what you just see in your book or on a board, it's one part of the brain which is very responsible, which is thinking of how to replicate certain things. But if on the basis of something existing, you're trying to produce some new thing, your brain works completely differently because it has to find a new solution for your circumstances. Again, it's not self-expression. It's the brainstorming whether that or this is better for my particular situation. And that is visible. When your work is done as a process of a perfect execution or accomplishment of something's been done before, you see how accurate you evaluate, you treasure it for how accurately it corresponds to something. But when the work is done as a result of a thinking process, you do see this thinking process and it resonates with the viewer, especially with those who would have some visual experience and visual literacy. Yeah, I've had this debate with my father. He believes that an icon should be a faithful copy of an original. And I keep trying to encourage him. I'm like, well, but you have all the skills and the knowledge. So you know the, the colors, you know who should be looking like what and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, who has curly hair and who doesn't, all this kind of jazz. And so 
I'm sort of interested in seeing what iconographers can do in the way that you're talking about, which is take the knowledge and the skills and then sort of find a way to be sort of thoughtful and come up with a more, I call it like a contemporary, but it would also be a more maybe engaging or whatever yes. kind of thing you would want to create versus just duplicating something from the 13th and 14th century. Yes, because since you're talking in a visual language, you should be engaging in the visual language. If you're an actor in a theater, you interact with people. If you're supposed to produce a sermon, you produce a sermon which will be touching people and not the one which will just give them a possibility to spend wonderful 15 minutes enjoying your particular sophisticated literary gifts. So it, it, it's just a different task. The icon is an instrument, and it will work better if it talks to people of our time. If it may be appealing, if it may be a focusing point for someone who would look at it. And another thing I should mention is that the way we make decisions is readable. So if our decisions are sincere and personal, people will trust us. People will trust what we produce. If these decisions are formal and made like, I'm supposed to do this and I'm doing it. I was told to do that and I'm doing it. Someone taught me to use this color and I'm exactly following the instructions. Then wait, why should I ask you to produce this object if I can just click the button on a photocopying machine and it produces the same thing, but much cheaper and faithfully. Okay, yes. No, okay, going within that, you're talking about like how they're supposed to be represented and all this kind of stuff. Uh, my understanding is that historically they were meant to be in churches. That was their original purpose way back when. How do you feel about the icons that are in museums or in art galleries or in, for all purposes, people's homes? Like, I mean, is there sort of the a right place for them to be? And potentially even then on the flip side, are there wrong places for icons to be? If we think icon is a visual message, it's important that the message can reach people. Icons in Russia are in museums because that was the only place where they could survive the communist time when now we start analyzing what happened. And it's about 90 something percent of all our historical inheritance was destroyed. So that was the only way for them to survive. And from the other hand, of course, if you take a violin separately and a violin sound in an orchestra, it's a different thing. But one violin is good as well. Of course, some icons are meant to be part of the architecture and to have certain other icons around them. But even just being so strange, special, and even weird for people may be a provocative moment for just trying to discover, like, why it's so weird? Why is it so strange? Were these guys barbarians? Not sure. That was some really good time. So maybe they had certain reason for it. And may happen something like what happened with my dad. Wait, what happened with your dad? Who was captured by the particular understanding of what an icon is and was trying to understand why they are the way they are. Okay, I took capture. I thought like he was like thrown in prison or something. Sorry. I oh, sorry, sorry. No, no. Okay. The, yeah, my, my, my. It's my. No, that's my horrible Western perspective of what I think happens in, in well, Soviet Union. Back well, then. we know some people were captured in his time, were taken into prison for icons as for religious propaganda in the middle of 1980s, and they were really taken into prison. But your father was not? No, he didn't. Okay, good. He wasn't. Okay. All right. So you don't have a problem with icons as quote unquote, like just even fine art pieces that are, let's say, sold or exhibited in art galleries. It's a way they can testify what's important for us as well. Yes. Okay, great. Now, 
also the uh, so again i i'm working off of like basically my dad i mean you know 25 years of him telling me stories upon stories about icons so i could be completely wrong about these things my understanding is is that traditionally again sort of like you know centuries ago they were they were originally painted with the intention of being seen with candlelight and so now when people make them they're not being seen with candlelight so does that change the effect of sort of how you engage with it? Because a candlelight creates a flicker, it creates shadows, it does, it moves. And, and it, even the gold sort of reacts differently to candlelight than it does to your household light that you would just have sort of consistent and not moving and all this. Does that change of the light source that is a sort of illuminating the icon does that make a difference or should it make a difference? Well, it emphasizes the importance of trying to make the icon more material because now with this electric light, everything gets more flat. So we have to find a way to make image look real and handmade even with the electric light. So that's true, yes. And with, of course, with the candlelight, it's much richer from visual point of view. And there is even a research by Bissera Pencheva, I guess I pronounce your name well, who has made a study according to which most of earliest icons were made of metal. And she has a special video on her website where she's carrying a candle near a metallic icon and how Wonderfully, it reflects very differently every single second, this fire flame. I know, but I mean, of course, it's dangerous and it's dirty because, I mean, like you were talking about how they, they were cleaned at a certain point in history and all of a sudden they were like, oh my gosh, they're really colorful. And that's because of all the soot and all the damage coming from all the, the candles over centuries. We're not going to go back to doing candles on them. So should the technique of doing it these days adjust uh, you know like what do you do to adjust for the fact that they're not being seen under that form of candlelight but under this flat contemporary electric lighting we make sure that our boards are not perfectly perfect we just do our best to make the gesso surface slightly floating and applying the pigments we also try to avoid the excessive flatness Besides, there is such a fashion among iconographers who apply gold so that the gold can reflect as a mirror someone standing in front of the icon. So it becomes an icon of yours if you're looking at yourself who is reflected in an icon. It's a very interesting concept. But again, making uneven surface and the color application, you achieve this result. So it, it's doable. Interesting. Something I just dawned on me, like, so w you're in St. Petersburg. I would imagine that a lot of tourists come around looking to buy icons and things like this. Like, is what is, so I guess what I'm getting to is sort of like, who's your market for icons? Is it just the churches or is it individual people? Is it tourists or locals? Like, how do you connect with people who desire these things? We have just discussed the community. It's very important. Well, we have a website and we have a certain number of people who, whom we have just met several, I don't know, years ago. And we sometimes have commissions from private people, sometimes from churches. So it's always unpredictable. And I guess the tourists are mostly willing to take something inexpensive and mostly reminding of Russia, like Matryoshka or black boxes. So it's not where our work is taken into account. I, it's perfectly acceptable. I mean, basically you're just saying our work is too high priced and too, too high quality for your general sort of uh, souvenirs, let's say. I would say we spend too much time with each piece to sell it as a souvenir. And especially because of this thing I've mentioned as a creative process produces a different result. So we don't make copies even of our own works, because in that case, you would be thinking like, what was my idea when I was choosing this red or green? So it's, again, another way of reasoning 
which doesn't allow you to produce something cool. So yes, it's too much time and energy. From the other hand, I sometimes have a friend who works in a hospital as a priest or somebody else who would approach and say, Philip, would you have some very simple icon for me who is not having much money? And I say, okay, wait, not now. It probably will not happen this month or the next month, but I'll try to find a solution and I'll produce an icon for you because the money is not the issue. The money is a means, but it's not always a way to measure what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, being choosing this profession of being an icon writer is not a something you go into for fame, glory, and money. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But how long does it take for you? So you said you were talking about the length of time to make a piece. So like, let's say from starting a board to writing the name at the end. There is no specific timing because it always depends on the task you're having, you have in your mind and the complexity of the subject and on particular requirements you have for this concrete project. The only thing I should say is that about 80% of our time we spend for research, for drawing on paper, for making sketches, for going through our library and finding the most appropriate models or ideas which we can use in our items. So this is the 80% of the time because the very process of accomplishing it, it's rather a technical thing and it doesn't take so much time. All right, I've seen everything from wall frescoes and mosaics all the way down to like miniature icons and even like things done on stones and all kinds of different materials. What's your general scale that you work on? Or maybe even what's your largest or your smallest you've ever done? Well, the smallest was like three inches on a board because one person asked me, he wanted very much to have an icon for traveling. And he just wanted it in a little leather box, which would be like three inches high. The largest is actually my favorite because I do like painting icons, which are separate objects or entities. But my favorite activity is to work with the church interiors or with the space, because then a little image may resonate in a huge architectural environment and work wonderfully. So in this case, you are supposed to make the cooperation with the architect, even if he lived thousands of years ago, you enter his job, enter his labor and work together. That's a great thing. So largest are great because every room would deserve its individual solution. In some cases, it should be something long, in some cases, it can be a round object. In several cases, you may have three pieces, and that's enough. So it all depends. All right. Is there any last little topic you, that I didn't even know to ask about that you want to talk about? Well, I'm not sure if it's much about iconography, but it's among my latest, I would say, personal discoveries. While talking to some client, at certain moment, you have a feeling that the client is having a vision regarding what you are supposed to produce. Well, with iconography, which you're supposed to produce for some church, a client does have certain rights because it's his church. And he's thinking, okay, I want here this kind of icon with these specific qualities. But this brings to an interesting point where iconography or art in general is being confused with design, which is called to solve people's or clients' problems. So what happens is that an artist is applied the same requirements or artist is suggested the same kind of approach or requirement as we may ask our bedroom painter when he or we are supposed to choose the color for it. So please make me this, that, and that, which I th know will be good for me. And this is a very interesting thing because it's probably the most contemporary or at least the 20th century approach. 
I guess before that time, before the design era, people wouldn't treat artists as those who fulfill their dreams. Well, sometimes they might, but not sure so that much. Oh, no. People who commission art have always tried to match their drapes and their curtain, their carpets i mean the and the sofa colors i mean that's very normal so but it's interesting to hear that basically now that's being sort of extended into like i want an icon but i want it to match my curtains seriously well not in, not a curtain maybe but there's a certain point like the i want this subject and that subject because it's my favorite okay how does that make you feel? Uh, in certain, well, well and here wait, comes the. Well, no, wait, let's take it back a step. Did you take those commissions? Because personally, I would just say, fuck off. <laughs> uh, you know, like I have a, I have a pet peeve about commissions. And so it takes a certain kind of creative person to do commissions. I am not that creative person because I find that most people that come with commissions come basically they have an idea they have in their mind of what they want and I'm just a tool to create their thing but they don't really give a shit about me or my creative ideas or my creative input or anything like that and so I'm just not a huge fan of it I don't generally do it uh, I generally produce whatever I want to produce and you either buy it or you don't that's it like it would take, a, unless somebody came to me and said, I love what you do. I have this space. Here's the color palette. Create me something that fits in this space. I will have no input on it. And here's your money up front. <laughs> I'm for that. I'll do that. Well, except for the money, which are not always working like that. I usually try to present the situation the way you've just described. So dear, I don't know, sir. I'll do my best to consider your space and to adjust what I'm doing to your space. And that will probably include certain points of your list, which you've just made knowledgeable for me, but I can't promise it fully will satisfy all your needs. So I, I do it up front. So in a lot of artists lives so like i'm thinking you know public art and things like this they often do like uh, proposals where they have to do you know sketches or drawings or even three-dimensional renderings or whatever depending on your the way you work so like when you are doing something for a client or a commission in particular do you submit like drawings in advance and say and then get their approval on it or do you Often did like people just say, Hey, we love what you do. I love your quality. Here's my space. Well, the last thing is preferable, of course. And I've been taught by my experience not to do too much work in advance because it just is not good for the work itself. If you're producing lots of things without evaluation from your own side, that means your client will not evaluate it as well. So you may produce a little sketch of something like, okay, here is this space concept, how that may work, but to start doing something serious or, I don't know, large scale, you're supposed to agree about certain amount of money and get it in advance. From the other hand, it also, what we teach our students as well, is like, if you take this opportunity as a possibility to work on a certain subject you otherwise would have never tried. Like, I don't know, the icon of Holy Family. You are asked to produce, but for your own type of religious life, you would never think of it. Okay, try doing it. So, yes, that's a possibility. Well, I mean, it makes complete sense. It's basically because like I could even imagine like based on what you've said about some of your experiences that if you put a lot of time and effort into a proposed idea of, a, let's say, a wall piece at a church, you would you put all this time and effort in. No money has changed hands. And they the church takes it and they're like, oh, we really love that. Now we're just going to have this cheaper person do it for us. Well, yes, it, it's it's just because. Not many people understand that the work of artists is not just the work of someone who accomplishes. 
And that's how important it is to speak about the preparation work, about what you do to make this peace appear or happen. And this coming summer, we know that Tretikov Gallery is producing an exhibition where it really will be the process, not just the pieces. The process will be the object of exhibition. We're also invited, and I think it will be funny to bring all the sketches, pieces of fabric you put together to make the image work. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me, Matthew. That was a great honor. Thank you. Before you leave, I'd like to say thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We appreciate it, and we would love it if you would share the podcast with your friends, your family, your co-workers, your studio mates, anybody with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, not only today, but in the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.